Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We're going to actually start into our next part, part two of our teaching series as in the book um, to the Ephesians in the New Testament. Okay. If you have a Bible in sight, you'll see the Pew Bibles. I highly encourage you, first of all, not to use your phone unless you put on Do Not Disturb, but take an actual Bible. But, you know, if you want to use your phone, I'm not going to stop you. We are going to look at this passage today that you'll find on page 948 of your Pew Bible. And I encourage you to actually take it out because you'll see as we go through this passage why it's helpful to look at it. There were a lot of things that were going on there, as you heard Jade read. So it might help help you to have it in hand. I will say that when we planned this series, we took a pause. Remember, we did part one, chapters one through three in Ephesians when we started the new year, then we paused for Lent, and now we're going back to it. And it all seemed like a really good plan on paper at first, but I kind of felt it this week that it was hard to have such a long break mid-book because it's really hard to have this launch in separated from one through three and all that we talked about. So I have to do a little due diligence on going back for a second at least, because without the proper backdrop of the whole first part of the book of Paul writing to this church in Ephesus, starting from 4.1 can sound a whole lot of, here's what you should do live like this, performance-based messaging to the people. And that just is not it at all. I especially feel that contradiction just post-Easter, right? There's a lot of instruction on how to live, how to be in this passage. But just last week, we talked about this good news. Jesus gives a free gift of grace. He even offered it to Judas, who betrayed him, and Paul, who denied him. This is for everyone. Whatever you've done, this is your gift. And then we start this week, as you should live like this. So I'm going to be... That's not true. That's not what this tone is supposed to be. So I need to go back first before we start in chapter four and let's review part one, which we called rooted and established because that was based on that passage. It said, you are rooted and established in love. It's really just this amazing foundation. I was thinking of it this week. It's like all the foundational fire hose of truth in the image of a skyscraper, right? In Chicago, we think about this. They start by digging down deep foundation stuff that in some cases is more a feat of amazing engineering than the stuff that you can see. But they have to build the whole foundation before they go upwards. And that's the same thing that we're talking about here. Paul did a fire hose of foundational work in chapters one through three. And now he's going to say, and now build up and see what the world sees in light of the foundation that we already poured. Christ is seated at the right hand of the father interceding on our behalf. We are seated in Christ, participatory language. We talked about um, this as a progression that I love this little devotional. uh, It's a little book. I don't know why I called it a devotional. It's a book, Um, but it's the book. It's a devotional thought, kind of, on the book of Ephesus, written by Watchman Nee, who was uh, a major leader in the indigenous church planting movement in China. And he looks at the whole book uh, to the, the letter to the Ephesians as a progression. And he starts with sit, walk, 
stand. The whole one through three is sit in this position. You are seated within Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is God's cosmic plan and purpose to do this amazing work. And then in chapter four, we start to walk. And so the importance of getting this ordering right and not just starting out right off the bat with walking is really, really important. So I'm just gonna quote Watchman Nee for a second. We have sought to make it clear that Christian experience does not begin with walking, but with sitting. Every time we reverse the divine order, the result is disaster. The Lord Jesus has done everything for us. And our need now is to rest confidently in him. He's seated in the throne, so we are carried through in his strength. It cannot be too strongly emphasized that all true spiritual experience begins from rest. But it does not end there. Though the Christian life begins with sitting, sitting is always followed by walking. And I love that. So as we transition now in this part, if you missed part one, go back and at least read it, maybe listen. Our podcast is online, or you can go on Facebook and watch it if you want. But just really get some of that foundational truth first, because it is time to talk about what comes out of that sitting and how that walk ends up happening. Lynn Coick in her commentary on Ephesians talks about moving from the redemptive work of God, that whole first part, into the ethical focus for the church's health and growth and how believers might live into their salvation. And I love that language when she says live into it because it's not like, okay, everybody, now go and do this stuff. It's much more of an invitational language that says in light of all of this rich goodness, we get to go and live into it. It's an invitation to full flourishing in light of what God has done in Christ and continues through the work of the Spirit. So it's really important that we see this as a transition from the first part of the book. Now, another thing I would note, um, last two weeks, actually, if you were here for either of those, we were focused a little bit more in a tone of storytelling. And today we're going to switch our tone very much. We are going to walk slowly, no pun intended, through this verse by verse. And we are not doing a storytelling kind of posture. Now, why do we switch this up? For a number of reasons. Number one, we want to engage with scripture in different ways because as individuals, we engage with scripture in different ways. So think of this, if this is kind of like a slow walk for you and not your cup of tea, it's just one different way. And we mix up how we do this, but it's important for us to open up these Bibles. And here's the other thing I would say, don't just listen to me. Listen for the Holy Spirit. This is really, really important. As we're listening, we don't just want to be sitting to get information on a passage. That's all fine and dandy. But what we also want to know, like the song we just sang, like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And the Holy Spirit is here with us and among us. And there's very, one of the ways that we engage with God is through scripture. When the Holy Spirit lights up a word, a phrase, gives you a feeling when a part of that passage is read. And I would encourage you, really take that posture as you're reading this passage as we read it together and, and allow something to stand out and just like, just grab it in your mind's eye and, and hold it. You work through it in, in community with your friends over brunch in prayer through the week, but like, we're going to do a slow walk, but we're going to listen and absorb beyond just my many words. So 
I'm gonna, this is the plan. I'm gonna highlight some things in this passage that I think are important and significant, not only in the original message that Paul was writing to instruct and encourage that first century church in the metropolitan city of Ephesus, but also still to instruct us today in our metropolitan setting here in Chicago. So we're gonna go um, through a lot of scripture uh, lots of it I'm just going to admit to you like too fast we could go so much deeper but we're going to do this because then we're going to end in a spot where I have like a particular pastoral passion today I did not mean for that alliteration to happen just then and I couldn't rethink of how to say that okay I do have a particular pastoral passion and we're going to end there okay we got a plan let's pray God, I thank you for your presence through the Holy Spirit who is welcome here with us. And thank you for your holy scriptures as well, God, that we just get to open these pages and listen to you through the words written there. So I pray uh, just your grace and um, your promptings to come not only to us as a community, but also today, I I just pray that really for the individuals in this room that you would meet them in a a sweet and personal way um, as we walk through this passage of scripture. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to dive in. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start in verse one, but I'm going to have it up here in two different translations because I want us to notice three different things that come out a little bit better in a different translation. Um, I grabbed the New King James Version. Um, I love the NIV. That's our pew Bibles. But a couple things are are a little more hidden in the NIV that comes across in the other translation. The first point is the emphasis on the first word, therefore, and I already made this point, so I won't belabor it, but it's super important when that word is in there, what Paul is saying is because of everything I just said in chapter one, verse one through three, verse wherever that one ends, I don't remember, because of all of that. So I already made that point, but just pause. Whenever you see in scripture a word, therefore, you got to put it in reverse and see what we're building our point on, okay? So that's the first thing. Therefore, because of everything I said, walk worthy. And that, I use this translation in part because Watchman Nee's point is so good, and he uses the translation that says walk. Our translation says live it out, which is just to make it more like in the language that we would use. But the point is, is ongoingly, actively walk in living this out in your life in this way. And so Paul actually uses this letter translated walk in some versions eight times in the letter, which is a lot of times, meaning this is active participation. And one of the things I love about that imagery is that it involves a journey. It means ongoingly. And I don't know about you, but when I'm walking like around my neighborhood, snapping silly pictures of magnolia trees, sometimes I stumble, but that's not the end of my walk. Do you know what I mean? Like it's ongoing. Just keep going. This is sometimes you stumble on a journey. Keep going. And every step each day is an opportunity to live well and faithfully live it out. So that's the other thing I wanted to point out in that version is walk. This is an ongoing thing and an imagery that Paul uses multiple times through this um, letter. And then the last thing, the third thing I want to point out in verse one, I promise I won't go this slow on every verse, but these are important ones to me. The last one I would say is one that if you've been around, you've heard me say this before. I am quite sure that my pastor growing up knew this, but somehow I either wasn't paying attention, which is very likely, or he just never explicitly said it. 
One of the hardest things to me in being an English speaker reading an ancient Greek text is that the English language does not have a plural version of you. And so, well, except for y'all, which there is a Bible out there that's printed to say y'all whenever it is plural. I don't actually know the name of it, but there is a y'all translation. And that's really important because little Melissa Munn was trying to be a good girl and reading her Bible. And I thought this was all about me. So much of the New Testament has such a bigger, more community-minded people of God, ginormic, cosmic plan focus that gets lost in translation. So I read the Bible way too individualistically in my youth, and I want us to see that this moment for you to walk worthy of the call to which you were called is y'all. Hey, y'all, we're going to do this. This is something that I think is really important because all of this language isn't about individualistic moral behavior modification. Some of that's needed. We need to take ownership of our behavior. But the message is, hey, community of God, how are we going to do this together, y'all? How are we going to do this as we move on to the next part? Okay, now we'll go on from there, knowing those, those things are important. So Paul goes on, and this is where it starts to um, give some actual instruction. He starts in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, Y'all, this is, y'all are doing this together. But this is the other thing. Look, the, these things, the humble, gentle, patient with each other, it's all about with other people. None of this is something that we need to worry too much about if I'm not being particularly humble in my living room alone one day. Like, I mean, that's not great, but I'm not impacting anybody else. All of these things, I'll say this a different way. All of these things have impact as you're relating to other people. This is a very community-focused call. I love this. I think it's Gordon Fee, but I can't find where. Um, he points out all of the places where this, t- this one another phrase happens, all the active words to do with and for one another, and calls it one anothering. One of my favorite new biblical words that I think he made up, if not I did, I don't know, but I'll give him credit. This is all about one anothering well. And so when we're looking at doing these things with one another, let's look. The first thing we see that he says out of the gate, be humble and gentle. It's an interesting combo to start out with, and it might ring a little bit of a bell if you're familiar with uh, the Gospels at all. You might remember Jesus said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28, in this beautiful invitational language, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the combo where Jesus, it, you will find rest for your souls. Jesus uses that combo. And so it's like Paul is saying, remember how Christ is and was with us? Let's be that to each other now. Okay, y'all? Like, let's be that same way with each other. That's the same combo. And then he goes on to say, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And this is not romantic, like, love. We know this. This is like, what does active love in one anothering look like? I won't go deep here, but I encourage you that when you are thinking about how do I actively love 
one another well, like scripture keeps telling me to do, to go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read that passage that you often hear in weddings, but know that it's for our one anothering and its original intent. So be patient and bear with one another in love. It sounds a lot like what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. How, how does that look like? Well, love is patient right out of the bat. There it is. Be patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So Paul is saying, like, what, do the one anothering in patient love really well together. We can do this, church, like Christ did it for us. We can do this. And so this is the call that we're getting. And he goes on then to say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I'm in verse 3 if you're following in your pew Bibles to look. So this is where we get the series imagery and the name for this um, this this series that we're doing now, um, th- this, this idea of being woven together and the bond of peace, this is, this, this is the intentional to say all that we're talking about now, such a theme in the second half is unity. That unity is a bond of peace woven together. And notice this in verse three, it's not for us to create the unity, but we're told to keep it. It has been created for us and now it's on us to keep it. The unity has been given. It's the gift through Christ with the spirit as the deposit, all that goodness in the first part, right? We'll go deeper here in the coming weeks. We have a fun opportunity to do Ephesians 5. If you ever, those of you who've read that before, Kelly has. Okay, we'll have fun. It'll be good. Um, We're gonna have to go deeper here for a little while, but uh, for now, let me just say this. Christ broke down the wall of hostility between God and people, and all have access. There is therefore no more hierarchy, and you're all here together as the body of believers. Christ made the unity. It's up to us to guard it. Christ made the path that said there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. We'll have more time to talk about that. We don't lose our particularities when we come into the body of Christ. They are just no longer a cause for hierarchy. But Christ made the unity. And Paul's saying, now now guard it. Keep that bond of peace. And in case we were getting into to-do vibes at all here, Paul shifts back to this reminder of the foundation in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, this is like a truth bomb. This is like Paul just wrote a one-sentence creed on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or something. But the thing is, like, we all know how grammar works, and the grammar is similar in Greek. You can say there's one baptism, comma, Lord, comma. You know, like you don't have to keep saying one unless you're doing so on purpose. You want to drive home the oneness. This is a callback. Your unity is based on this God truth bomb that I just wrote out. It's all unity. And then I love the end of this, the, the all being repeated again, right? Because that's that whole peace we saw time and time again in the first part of this book. It's the abundance, the absoluteness, the all-encompassing cosmic everything, all of it. Um, And I love that. It's just so complete, so absolute. And so we just sit under this reminder that this unity is, is 
mirrored from and sourced from the one, very oneness of God, the oneness of our whole faith, all of it. It's not just about us doing it well together. Does that make sense? Like he's basing it in something so beautiful, our one God, which makes us think also of the Shema. Um, okay, so, and then he goes from here, the same God that's overall has gifted graces upon us. I'm now in chapter, or excuse me, verse seven. And he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So I won't go down deep here in the, this through 10, uh, verse 10. What He's saying that basically the one who was in heaven came to earth and gives gifts. That's what this whole part is about. Like the, the all encompassingness of God's self came in Christ Jesus and now is giving some, some will say gifts, some will say grace. I think it's a both and that, that translation works. It's basically saying um, it's like a gift of grace. These graces are upon you. Christ himself now picking up in 11 gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that, always with a purpose, the gifts are for a purpose. They're not just so you can have cool gifts. Um, So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Abundance language again. Just a really quick note on this list of graces. Um, Some put this as another New Testament list of spiritual gifts. Some say, I know I don't think these are quite the same. They're different because Christ is the giver. I'm not going to go far down that path. I don't think that's the important thing here. What I want us to see is that indeed Christ is the source of these particular gifts which are given through people real messy humans to accomplish a goal and that is to build the confetti still falls don't be scared yeah I just saw it out of the corner of my eye that happens for a little while still um again if you missed Easter you should be here next year um okay I just lost my train of thought because I knew you were going to jump when it went right in front of your face. I'm sorry. Where was I? Oh, the gifts. Okay, Christ is giving them to, for a purpose, to lead the church to maturity. And so again, quoting Lynn Kohick, to accomplish the task of equipping the church, Christ gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The emphasis is on a team who by God's grace strengthens the church. So the thing that I want to point out, two parts of this. Number one, this is how we can say that Christ is the head of the church, that Christ is the one who leads a church, is because Christ is the one who gives these graces or gifts for the leadership of a church to happen. It emphasizes God through Christ as the provider, why we are Christ's bride, Christ's body. That's who we are, right? Christ is leading as Christ provides that which is needed for the maturation of a body of believers. So that's one, Christ is the head. Number two, it emphasizes plurality, which is a really big deal for us around here. It's a strong commitment, and sometimes it means things go slow, and it can get a little messy. I'm not going to lie. Occasionally, it's frustrating. Sorry, the whole leadership crew, but it's true. They're frustrated with me sometimes, but it's worth it. It's so worth it, and it's biblical. I strongly believe that. Because of passages like this, it's not a one person. Christ's going to give a person to lead you, church. No. Christ is going to give the graces needed to do the work. And what is that work for? To build up. This is a perfect example when you are looking at health and church leadership to make sure that you're looking at something that is not exercising power over but power for, power to, power towards, building up, developing, equipping. That is the kind of power that Jesus demonstrated 
and that Christ calls us to as well as we lead in our various capacities all over the place, in our ministry settings, in our, in our homes, uh, in our workplaces. This is good stuff, but it's specifically here for church health. This is a really, really good thing to look at. Okay, so now let's return to this language. Listen to this language um, of returning to that maturation and that building up language now, remembering that Christ is the giver of the graces to help doing that work, we pick up in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. I wonder if he had someone specific in mind when he wrote that. I feel like he probably did, you guys. I think that the people who heard this original letter were like, I know exactly who he's talking about right now. We don't know, though. Instead, speaking the truth and love, that's super important right there. We'll come back to that. Truth and love, we will grow to become an every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ from him the whole body joined together and held like that bond imagery in every supporting ligament I kind of mixed metaphors there sorry grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work so this is where Paul starts to introduce this body language, but it still is, it's, it's, the same, it's a unity, it's a, it's a togetherness, a one anothering image that Paul likes to use. And um, his point in doing this, I'm going to read a passage somewhere else that he does this, that kind of gives this image. Um, the important thing to remember, Christ is the head and every part is in it, and no part is more important than the other part. That's the thing that he spells out a little more vividly in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in 21, if you want to follow along. Otherwise, just listen. The eye can't say to the head, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts get no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. This is the unity language again. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So that body imagery is meant to really get at the heart of that unity, that bond of peace that we are to guard. And the way that we do y'all one another in life together, that is what we are being called to. And we're supposed to do that uh, reflecting the very way of Jesus with patience, humbleness, etc. Christ is the head. Christ already did the work, chapters one, two, three. And this was God's plan. And we walk it out. We are to fight to maintain the unity that's been provided already to us through Christ's saving work. This work links people who otherwise may not make any sense together. That passage about Jew and Gentiles, like that was revolutionary in their day. You guys remember that, that they would be able to worship together. That was revolutionary and it can be a little lost on us, but I don't think we have to look far in our own culture to see things where there are gaps between people groups that are so clear, even though everybody says that you can't see them, but they're there, you know. We all know what they are. And so in our world, maybe we would write a different list. Maybe it would be saying, like, we get to walk together in this regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, physical ability, political party, ouch, uh, cultural heritage, uh, all of it. 
regardless of any of that, we get to walk together and hold this bond of peace because what Christ has done, we get to walk in it. We get to walk in the reality of what Christ already did. So guard this precious bond of peace so we all may be built up in our walk with Christ. Here's the piece I was going to tell you that I get a little particularly passionate about. I would love to end the sermon there because I could really get going on that piece and be like, yes, 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 we get to do this thing. Here is what I love. You guys have heard me tease about how my family has keywords and they use them to get me to do things that I wouldn't want to do. Like, I have an adventure, mom. And I'll be like, okay, we'll go get manicures and you'll buy them. Um, So... These are the things that they know. We laugh about it. They do it on purpose. I I love it. I have keywords. You guys have picked up on some of my keywords, I'm sure, if you've been around for a little while. I love this stuff. Attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ literally is core to my life goal. For me, for my family, for our community, I love it. Truth and love, the language of this sermon, bonds of peace, be built up. This is like... Melissa keyword language explosion. I would love to tee us up at a high crescendo and stop here because I love this stuff. But I've made you guys a promise that I'm committed to point things out that I also don't love. And the course of doing church well and the course of being truly healthy in our one anothering, we have to talk about this. And this is one of those places where terms like unity have scripturally been misused in order to force conformity. And that makes me super unhappy. It is a non-keyword. I don't like that at all. I don't love it. When the body of Christ has misused misused truths like this, truth bombs of the good news, to suppress or to exercise power over instead of truly desiring to build each other up. I don't like to hear about it. I hear it when people just tell me their stories of their own pasts. I don't like hearing those stories. I will faithfully sit and listen and I will probably cry with you, but it makes me sick. I don't like reading about them. If you're in my line of work, you read church news and it's in there. It's in there and I do not like reading about it at all. And part of me wants to end on the high note and walk off this stage, but I promised you we'll talk about real stuff here too. Because if we're going to do this, y'all, one anothering, it goes in all directions and we need to hold each other accountable together on how to be the body of Christ in a better way. When the concept of unity is weaponized to silence, diversity of thought silence different experiences or perspectives. You guys, that's not biblical. That's not what this passage is talking about when it's talking about unity. Biblical unity here is not the same as uniformity. And so you are not out of line if you see somewhere where you need to speak truth and love. And that's a huge piece because it's not about just like desiring divisiveness. I don't think that's really what I'm too worried about. But you look at the, the relational motivation behind things. And if it is to say, I think we've wandered from something that feels like something feels off, we need to be able to speak the truth in love and not have somebody meet you and say, well, don't say anything because we need to, we need to keep unity. 
as the body. Well, that, that's false unity. Uniformity and unity are not the same thing. A bond of peace means that we are willing to do hard conflict resolution, that we're willing to go and have a conversation that might be uncomfortable rather than allow a root of bitterness to start to take, uh, take hold in our hearts. Like we need to do that. And sometimes that's hard work, but you guys, when that work is done, you will not be, you should not be met with anyone who says to shush for the sake of unity. That's not the same thing. I feel like what I want us all to be is committed to spaces where we decide it's agree, it's okay to not agree and still respect one another. To be a place where we can speak truth in love to one another. And the goal, again, isn't about divisiveness. It's that heart of love and desire to guard the unity that's already been given as a gift from the Christ, right? I know it's on a different topic, but I love the way she talks about it. Uh, Sandra Maria von Opstel um, has written a book on the next worship, and it's really, um, it's really great. I believe that all that we're doing here together is our worship, not just when we sing. I love it when we sing. Um, so I'm, I'm taking her language that she originally was talking about in worship, a little out of context to all of our life together. That's my confession. But listen to her wisdom here. She says, in order to experience the joyous discomfort of encounter Encountering God in new ways, Christians must practice the discipline of acknowledging differences while suspending judgment. If all of what we do here is our worship together, then I want to say that it matters a lot how we guard our bond of peace, this unity given as a grace from Christ while actively practicing the joyous discomfort of celebrating difference, of inviting difference in, of honoring where difference exists. And yes, there are some primary things, you know, that would be really important to remain in harmony on, but like most of the stuff, we are okay to disagree on, right? Or to have different experiences. Let us be people who want to learn from each other and hear and see a piece of God. Uh, Christina Cleveland says uh, every culture brings uh, a, a piece of God that you could never have seen on your own. I didn't say it quite right. She said it much better, but the point is really good. If you enter into even relational difference, whatever the basis of that difference is, and you listen and you learn from other perspectives, that is guarding the bond of peace because what we're saying is like, I want to experience a part of God by knowing you because we are a new us when you are here. And if we really believe that, then we're guarding this bond of peace in a way that celebrates that there are differences. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your scripture. I thank you for different ways that we uh, mosey on through it from week to week here. I thank you for this space to gather. But most of all, I thank you for your presence when we're gathering in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you um, ignite our hearts or even just give little whispers of, of uh, thoughts or um, uh, experience of agreement or encouragement or even just presence. So God, God, I just pray that as we continue on in our worship, that you would keep working. I know that you already have been, and I just thank you for your faithfulness, faithfulness to us, to never give up on us as we do not give up on the living witness of the holy broken church. Help us to guard this bond of peace in ways that actually has tangible difference and is visible to the world around us in a way that just shows them your love, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. 
Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.